This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We rejoin our clash of the literary titans for this episode with part two of our debate, Dickens versus Tolstoy. Celebrated writer John Milan represents Dickens and historian and author Simon Shama goes for Tolstoy. They're joined by star actors, including Tom Hiddleston, to bring the arguments to life. Our host for the event, which first aired in 2018, was the playwright and broadcaster Bonnie Greer. This is part two of a three-part episode, and if you'd like to get the member-only part three, then head over to intelligencesquared.com membership, or you can subscribe to our channel on Apple. Now let's rejoin the debate with Simon Sharma about to make his case. Now, Simon Sharma for Leo Tolstoy. How many of you read Tolstoy? Put up your hands. Not bad, but not a majority. I'll tell you why I'm asking you, dear friends. And that's because I think I know that Tolstoy, in some sense, would have hated the idea of who's winning and who's not. For Tolstoy, really, in a war, for example, nobody wins in life. Somehow everybody wins. And John is, is right that uh, Tolstoy didn't really like Dickens. He worshipped Dickens. He actually heard Dickens in 1861 when he was in London. He heard Dickens read uh, A Christmas Carol in one of his performances at St. James's Hall in, in Piccadilly. And I, we don't know really quite what he thought of Christmas Carol, but the, the thought struck me that actually um, Tolstoy's joke book is quite thin. Um, <laughs> and you can bet your life there's not much in Tolstoy that would have made it to a panto, I think, in the way that Christmas Carol did. But I think there was something, what I want to try and do rather than win, I actually don't give a toss who wins because I love them both. What I do care about and what I feel that Count Leo would care about, would try and persuade all those of you who've never gone near Tolstoy, so big, so forbidding, so daunting, that the actually being inside Tolstoy's books is not so much reading as actually having a life with it. The best thing that was ever said about Tolstoy, I think, was by the Russian writer Isaac Babel, who said, if the world could write itself, it would write like Tolstoy. Now, why is that? Tolstoy, who actually made one go at writing like Dickens, in particular like David Copperfield, wrote it as his book called 
a childhood. And Dickens was translated very, very quickly into Russian. And it, it's one of the most mawkish and awkward and forced and sentimental and disingenuous of all the things that Tolstoy did. So what Tolstoy did was go to a different place. And the different place that he went to was into the modern world. He's as much part of our experience more so, perhaps, than he was of the 19th century. And what he did not want to do, eventually, was be theatrical, like Dickens. He doesn't actually have characters in his book. He has people. He couldn't imagine having the Veneerings and the Pecksniffs and the Micawbers and the Magwitches. They are ordinary names of ordinary people. Dickens, of course, wrote to perform. He wrote for you. He wrote for an audience. Tolstoy only read out loud once in his life to a small group of family and friends in 1864. Was very shy. We know he then did all, a lot of different parts. But what he wanted to do, really, was throw open a window. You could simply climb through that window and be in that world. So that sometimes... The writing compared to Dickens is great, extravagant, look at me, applaud me. Theatricality is flat and limpid and sometimes even chilly. And there's another reason for that too. Tolstoy went to places Dickens didn't go, namely to the war. He went beyond Europe. He went on a raid to a village with his brother Nikolai to... Chechnya. He served in the Crimean War. He saw the full horror of war. And I think for Tolstoy at that moment, actually, any kind of flamboyance disgusted him. At the end of the very end of his writing life, he came back to the experience. He spoke many, many languages, including some Caucasian languages like Turkmen. He came back to that experience in an astonishing story. Some of the greatest things that Tolstoy ever did are short stories. Um, and this one is called Haji Murat. It's a long, short story. He came to it and went back from it uh, many times between 1896 and 1904. This is chapter from chapter 17, the shortest in Haji Murat. And it's an account of what happens to a village in the Caucasus, a Chechen village, when the Russian army raid has got through it. Two words which otherwise will sound very weird. An aul is a Chechen village and a satliya is a house. And Haji Murat is a Chechen chieftain who had been part of the resistance of the Russians, went over, now decided he'd go over to the Russians because he hated the local imam. And the story begins with Haji Murat being received in this particular village, but... After the Russians had got through with it, this is what happens. The Aul devastated by the raid was the one in which Haji Murat had spent the night before his coming over to the Russians. Sado, with whom Haji Murat had stayed, was leaving for the mountains with his family when the Russians approached the Aul. When he came back to his Aul, he found his Saklia destroyed. The roof had fallen in. The doors and posts of the little gallery were burned down, and the inside was befouled. His son, the handsome boy with shining eyes who had looked rapturously at Haji Murat, was brought dead to the mosque on a horse covered by a burqa. He'd been stabbed in the back with a bayonet. 
The fine-looking woman who'd waited on Haji Murat during his visit, now in a smock torn in front, revealing her old sagging breasts with her hair undone, stood over her son and clawed her face until it bled and wailed without ceasing. Sardo took a pick and shovel and went with some relationists to dig a grave for his son. The old grandfather sat by the wall of the destroyed sacklier and whittling a little stick stared dully before him. He'd just come back from his apiary. The two haystacks, formerly there, had been burned. The apricot and cherry trees he had planted and nursed were broken and scorched. And worst of all, the beehives had all been burned. The wailing of women could be heard in all the houses and on the square where two more bodies had been brought. The small children wailed along with their mothers. Hungry cattle who had nothing to eat also bellowed. The older children did not play, but looked at their elders with frightened eyes. The spring had been befouled, obviously on purpose, so that it was impossible to take water from it. The mosque was also befouled, and the mullah and his assistants were cleaning it up. The old heads of households gathered on the square and squatting down discussed their situation. Of hatred for the Russians, no one even spoke. The feeling that was experienced by all the Chechens, big and small, was stronger than hatred. It was not hatred, but a refusal to recognize these Russian dogs as human beings. And such loathing, disgust, and bewilderment before the absurd cruelty of these beings that the wish to exterminate them, like the wish to exterminate rats, venomous spiders, and wolves, was as natural as a sense of self-preservation. Like Dickens, Tolstoy was very interested in geography, in specifics of place, and indeed in nature. Nature was a real actor. I think I would, one of the things, like John, I, I, I don't at all want to be oppositional on this, but one of the things I think that Tolstoy does, because he lives so much in the country, he lives with the season so very much on, on his estate that he's wonderful about animals. And actually, possibly, you could make an argument, I won't make it here, that the very greatest thing he ever wrote was a short story called Master and Man, the cast of which are two peasants, one is a peasant merchant and a horse, a bay-gelding muhorti, who head off into a snowstorm. And it would be a spoiler to tell you with what consequences that is. But nature is an actor. Nature is ferocious. Nature is extraordinary, especially the Russian winter, of course. And there is a great fog passage, ain't there, in War and Peace. We, we're now going to have a fog off, actually. <laughs> you know that Russian family, the fog offs. You know. They wouldn't let anyone look at them. They were completely stumbling around. But the fog for Tolstoy is a fog which actually hangs over the battlefield at Austerlitz. And it's not the thing that 
John very cunningly and wisely, I too love absolutely that opening of the Bleak House. My dad performed it magnificently. My dad should have met Mr. Reggiani, I think. But it goes on and on and fogs and fogs and fogs. And the fog eventually is a kind of piece of dramatic filmic play. It settles around the head of the Lord Chief Justice. But Tolstoy has a real fog, and it's a fog that is concealing. It's the, the, in the morning of the fog before the battle, the fog lifts from the height of the hill, but the fog just stays in a foggy bottom, and with tremendous, tremendous kind of consequences. And it's, 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 it's another kind of real fog. The fog was so thick that though day was breaking, one couldn't see ten paces ahead. Bushes looked like enormous trees, level places like cliffs and slopes. Everywhere on all sides, one might run into an enemy, invisible, few paces away. In the bottom where the action began, the fog was still thick, but up above it had cleared, but nothing of what was happening could be seen from above, down below. Danger for the Russian army. Nine o'clock in the morning, an unbroken sea of fog spread below, but at the village of Schlapanitz on the heights, where Napoleon stood surrounded by marshals, it was perfectly light. Over him was the clear blue sky and the enormous ball of the sun, like a huge hollow crimson float, bobbed on the surface of the milky sea of fog. Fantastic stuff. And very often, actually, the great force of you being there is built up from these sharply, perfectly described physical moments. Um, often the greatness of Tolstoy's work is built up from these little tiles of tiny details as well. He is at the same time cosmic and imperious and Olympian and panoramic and minute things. My favorite little tile, a sort of tessera really, is when um, the Battle of Borodino, incredibly bloody battle that happened and among its casualties are Prince Andre and Anatole, two antagonists. And a field surgeon emerges from the tent of a field hospital. Tolstoy describes him holding a cigar, and I can't do it, my old arthritic chronic hands, between the thumb and the little finger. Why? Because the middle fingers are covered in blood and he doesn't want to light the cigar while blood is all over it. Reality, a hard, vivid, brutal thing. The other thing to introduce the next reading is that well, I think actually Tolstoy has a grip on a particular reality of the lives of women. We heard this wonderful exchange between Miss Havisham and Estella, but so many of, Tolstoy, so many of Dickens's women are either monsters or angels. Two monsters, one has brought up the other monster in Great Expectations. Tolstoy, it seemed to me, actually, and they both treated women badly, although Tolstoy loved his wife, Sophia, throughout his life, or however stormy it was. Tolstoy knew how women relate to each other. And one passage I wanted, we want now to give you is actually two sisters. This is the so-called subplot, but it's terribly important from Anna Karenina. The Sherbatsky sisters, Kitty, the young one, Dolly, the older one, they both suffered. The whole famous opening of Anna Karenina is Dolly Sherbatsky has been betrayed by her adulterous husband. So she is, somehow wants to 
keep the marriage together, but she's distraught and worn down by what she has to go through. Kitty, the young one, has turned down the man who really loves her, a man called Levin, who is Tolstoy in disguise, because she's actually in love with Vronsky, the clothes horse for whom Anna Karenina falls. They come together as sisters, but they come together in a kind of tortured passion. Entering Kitty's small boudoir, a pretty little pink room with dolls as young, pink and gay as Kitty had been just two months earlier, Dolly remembered with what gaiety and love they had decorated this little room together last year. Her heart went cold when she saw Kitty, sitting on the low chair nearest the door, staring fixedly at a corner of the rug. Kitty glanced at her sister, and her cold, somewhat severe expression did not change. I'll leave now and stay put at home, and you won't be allowed to visit me. I would like to talk to you. About what? Well, what else if not your grief? I have no grief. Come now, Kitty. Can you really think I don't know? I know everything. And believe me, it's nothing. We've all gone through it. Kitty was silent, and her face had a stern expression. He's not worth your suffering over him. Yes, because he scorned me, Kitty said in a quavering voice. Don't talk about it. Please don't. Why? <sighs> Who told you that? No one said that. I, I am sure he was in love with you <sighs> and is still in love. But oh, these condolences are the most terrible thing of all for me. Kitty cried out suddenly, getting angry. She turned on her chair, blushed, and quickly moved her fingers, clutching the belt buckle she was holding, now with one hand, now with the other. Dolly knew this way her sister had of grasping something with her hands when she was in a temper. She knew that Kitty was capable of forgetting herself in such a moment and saying a lot of unnecessary and unpleasant things. And Dolly wanted to calm her down, but it was already too late. What? What is it you want to make me feel? What? Kitty was talking quickly. <sighs> that I was in love with a man who cared nothing for me, and then I, that I'm dying of love for him? And I'm told this by my sister, who thinks that... that... that she's commiserating? I don't want these pityings and pretenses. Kitty, you are unfair. Why do you torment me? On the contrary, I... I, I see that you are upset. But in her temper... Kitty did not hear. I have nothing to be distressed or comforted about. I'm proud enough never to allow myself to love a man who does not love me. But I'm not saying... One thing. Tell me the truth. Tell me. Did Levin speak to you? The mention of Levin seemed to take away the last of Kitty's self-possession. She jumped up from the chair, flinging the buckle to the floor, and with quick gestures of her hand began to speak. 
Why bring Levin into it too? I don't understand. Why do you need to torment me? I said and I repeat that I am proud and would never, never do what you're doing. Go back to a man who's betrayed you, who's fallen in love with another woman. I don't understand. I don't understand that. You may, but I can't. And having said these words, she glanced at her sister and seeing that Dolly kept silent, her head bowed sadly. Kitty, instead of leaving the room as she had intended, sat down by the door and covering her face with a handkerchief, bowed her head. The silence lasted for some two minutes. Dolly was thinking about herself. Her humiliation, which she always felt, echoed especially painfully in her when her sister reminded her of it. She had not expected such cruelty from her sister and was angry with her. But suddenly she heard the rustling of a dress along with the sound of suppressed sobs bursting out, and someone's arms encircled her neck from below. Kitty was kneeling before her. Dolinka, I am so, so unhappy. She whispered guiltily. Beloveds go often to the sunset in Dickens. Uh, Agnes and David. Uh, Dora says, you know, call me your wife, child. Tolstoy is the first of the great writers, I think. It looks forward to Strindberg and Ibsen, um, who actually understands love can make you obsessed and can turn bad. It can turn, it can be very unhappy. Flaubert does that. He's very very close to that, I think. And Anna Karenina, one of the most extraordinary things in the passage we're going to read now, um, is actually the point at which the two lovers, Anna and Vronsky, who should be in the throes of infatuated joy, a cloud actually passes between them. Why? Because Anna has just told Vronsky, or tells Vronsky, that she has told her husband what's going on. And this is an extraordinary passage about how men and women, lovers both, respond in completely different ways. Vronsky, the magnificent military horse-riding clothes horse, only can think of himself fighting a duel. That's what he thinks of immediately. That is not what's on Anna's mind. Let's read this. You're not angry that I sent for you. It it was necessary for me to see you. Serious and stern set of her lips, he could see behind the veil, immediately changed his state of mind. Aye, angry. But how did you come? Why here? Never mind. Come, we must talk. He understood something had happened. That this meeting was not going to be joyful. In her presence, he had no will of his own, not knowing the reason for anxiety. But he already felt that this same anxiety involuntarily communicated itself to him. What is it? What? She walked a few steps in silence, gathering her courage, and suddenly stopped. 
I didn't tell you yesterday that on the way home with Alexei Alexandrovich, I told him everything. I said that I could not be his wife, that I told him everything. He listened to her involuntary, leaning his whole body towards her as if wishing in this way to soften the difficulty of her situation. But as soon as she'd said it, she suddenly straightened up and his face acquired a proud and stern expression. Yes, yes, it's better, a thousand times better. I understand how difficult it was. But she wasn't listening to his words. She was reading his thoughts in the expression of his face. She couldn't have known that his expression reflected the first thought that occurred to him, that a duel was now inevitable. The thought of a duel had never entered her head. And therefore she explained this momentary expression of sternness differently. Having received her husband's letter, she already knew in the depths of her soul everything would remain as before, that she would be unable to scorn her position to leave her son, unite herself with her lover. The morning spent at Princess Tverskoy's had confirmed her still more in that. But all the same, this meeting was extremely important to her. She hoped it would change their situation and save her. If at this news he should say to her resolutely, passionately, without a moment's hesitation. Abandon everything and fly away with me. She would leave her son and go with him, but the news did not produce in him what she expected. He only seemed insulted by something. It wasn't the least bit difficult. It got done by itself. I understand, I understand. He interrupted, taking the letter without reading it and trying to calm her. I wished for one thing, I asked for one thing to break up this situation in order to devote my life to your happiness. Why are you telling me that? Could, could I possibly doubt it if I did? Who's that coming? Vronsky says suddenly, pointing at two ladies coming towards them. Maybe they know us. He hastened to turn down a sidewalk, drawing her after him. I, I don't care. As I said, that is not the point. I cannot doubt that, but there is what he writes. Here is what he writes to me. Read it. Again, as in the first moment of the news of her break with her husband, Vronsky, while reading the letter, involuntarily yielded to the natural impression aroused in him by his attitude towards the insulted husband. Now, as he held the letter in his hands, he involuntarily pictured to himself the challenge he'd probably find today or tomorrow, the duel itself, during which he'd stand with the same cold and proud expression now on his face, having fired into the air, awaiting the insulted husband's shot. And at once there flashed into his head what he himself had thought that morning, that it was better not to bind himself. And he knew he couldn't tell her this thought Having read the letter, he raised his eyes to her and there was no firmness in his look. She understood at once that he already thought it over to himself. She knew that whatever he might tell her, he would not say everything he thought. And she understood her last hope had been disappointed. This was not what she'd expected. One of the most... Um, we're going we're gonna to have to break our time. We've got to do... We'll be about five minutes over, I think. Um, Tolstoy, busting time limits, expansive. We're going to go straight on to um, the next thing, because another great thing, the extraordinary thing about why I think Tolstoy felt that um, he sort of 
had mixed feelings, didn't like theatricality so much because the great drama in all Tolstoy's um, writing, the greatest drama, are interior monologues. He invents stream of consciousness writing. I'm sure James Joyce actually took a lot. Often the, right, the, the speech is broken and there are these gaps. What is actually said is often betrayed by body language rather than actually the words themselves. And one of the greatest passages, a stream of consciousness, so fierce, is, and it's taken directly from Tolstoy's life, is when Levin, the second hero, really the hero of the male hero of the book, and this, again, is out of time. It speaks to us all. How many parents in here? You're all parents, so, except for Kit, who is going to be one, as well as the star. <laughs> this is what happens when Levin is waiting for the birth of his child, uh, his wife, Kitty. He did not know whether it was late or early. The candles were all burning low. Dolly had just come to the study to suggest that the doctor lie down. Levin sat there listening to the doctor tell about a quack, mesmerist, and watching the ashes of his cigarette. It was a period of rest, and he'd become oblivious. He'd entirely forgotten what was going on now. He listened to the doctor's story and understood it. <coughs> Suddenly, there was a scream unlike anything he had ever heard. The scream was so terrible that Levin didn't even jump up, but holding his breath gave the doctor a frightened, questioning look. The doctor cocked his head to one side, listening, and smiled approvingly. It was all so extraordinary that nothing any longer astonished Levin. Probably it should be so, he thought, and went on sitting. Whose scream was it? He jumped up ran tiptoe to the bedroom, went round Lizaveta Petrovna and the princess, and stood in his place at the head of the bed. The screaming had ceased. But something was changed now. What he did not see or understand, nor did he want to see and understand. <laughs> but he saw it from Lizaveta Petrovna's face. Her face was stern and pale and still just as resolute, though her jaws twitched a little and her eyes were fixed on Kitty. Kitty's burning, tormented face with a strand of hair stuck to her sweaty forehead was turned to him and sought his eyes. Her raised hands asked for his. Seizing his hands in her sweaty hands, she started pressing them to her face. <laughs> don't leave! Don't leave! I'm afraid! I'm afraid! She spoke quickly. <laughs> Mama, take my earrings! They bother me! You're not afraid! Oh, God! Soon! She spoke quickly, quickly, and tried to smile. But suddenly her face became distorted, and she pushed him away from her. No, it's terrible! I'll die, I'll die! Go, go! She cried, and again came that scream that was unlike anything in the world. Levin clutched his head and ran out of the room. He knew that all was now lost. Leaning his head against the doorpost, he stood in the next room and heard a shrieking and howling such as he had never heard before. And he knew that these cries were coming from what once had been Kitty. He had long ceased wishing for the child. He now hated this child. He did not even wish for her to live now. He only wished for an end to this terrible suffering. Doctor, what is it? What is it, my God? He said, seizing the doctor by the arm as he came in. It's over. <laughs> and the doctor's face was so serious as he said it that Levin understood this nearly over to mean she was dying. <laughs> Forgetting himself, he ran into the bedroom. 
The first thing he saw was Lizaveta Petrovna's face. It was still more stern and frowning. Kitty's face was not there. In place of it, where it used to be, was something dreadful. Both in its strange look and in the sound that came from it. He leant his head against the wooden bedstead, feeling his heart was bursting. The terrible screaming would not stop. It became still more terrible. And then, as if reaching the final limit of the terrible, it suddenly stopped. Levin did not believe his ears. But there could be no doubt. The screaming stopped. And there was a quiet stirring. A rustle and quick breathing, and her faltering, alive, gentle, and happy voice softly said, It's over. He raised his head, her arms resting strengthlessly on the blanket. Remarkably beautiful and quiet, she silently looked at him and tried, but was unable to smile. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. The episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy the third members-only installment, then head over to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member. It's a way to allow us to create more debates and events in the future, and we're grateful for your support.